from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Shay Cooper a Baha'i from Wendell, Massachusetts, who is co-founder of the Prana Health and Yoga Center in Salem, Massachusetts. I started the interview by asking Shay where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in a small farming community in Wisconsin. The name of the town was Wyawiga, and my family and I, we had a dairy farm, and we had about 20 head of cows that we milked, and we basically, we raised all our own food. I had chickens from the time I was four, and pet pigs, and it was a lot of hard work, but in retrospect, I always felt very grateful for being uh, raised on a farm. And why is that? Well, it gave me this incredibly deep connection to the earth. This relationship, I think, of respect and renewal, and there were times my dad and I would be walking the fields, and he would say, well, you know, I I think this is going to be a pretty good year here, and we'd have a bumper crop of watermelons, and there was just this sweat. (laughs) I've always loved to sweat now. (laughs) Just, it felt... It just felt so cleansing and good, and yeah. plus a special relationship with the animals that I've always had. Mm-hmm. So I think that made it special. Yeah. I didn't have a love affair with the weeds. <laughs> Hoeing the weeds was mm. definitely not in the acre of cucumber that my sister and I had. He, my dad would say, okay, you're going to get to have an acre of cucumbers this year, and then you're going to get some money for that. And we were like, we don't care, we don't want the money. But we did it anyway. So it's always mixed. And in the summer we had to work, you know, seven days all straight through. But then in the winter things were pretty quiet. Another thing I remember that carried over was we would have community threshing parties. So a whole group of neighbors would come together and one day they would do all our fields. So they would harvest the weed or the corn or whatever and do the whole thing, and we would feed them. And then the next day, everybody would go to the next farm. That was pretty pretty nice. Yeah, very community-oriented. An acre of cucumbers is a big plot for a kid, huh? Yeah, that was really daunting. 
Yeah, I can it, it was so daunting that I would pull the cucumber plants out, mistaking them for weed. Oh, not really, but <laughs> <laughs> was like, oh no! Oh shucks, <laughs> one less cucumber I have to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> one less cucumber plant. Yeah. Oh god. You know, my dad really believed that work was, you know, your salvation. Mm. So we were never shy of that. And, and we also had, like, at least a half an acre of strawberries that we tended to and picked along with other chores. Right. Feeding the cows and climbing up the, the silo and throwing down the silage for the cows. Yeah. Stuff like that. So you were on the land all through... Um, yeah, we moved there when I was just turned four, and I was there till I graduated from high school at 17, mm-hmm. my growing up years. Yeah. So what did you do after you graduated from high school? I moved to Milwaukee, this large city, and I got a job as a bookkeeper at a bank, it didn't take me too long to realize that I just probably wasn't going to be really suited to the eight to five jobs because mm-hmm. that didn't last long. And then I, I was in Milwaukee a couple of years, and then I, I decided I wanted to go to the university, so I moved back to Appleton and I started going to the university there. Studied French and Russian and. And a lot of restlessness, a lot of restlessness, and a lot of, like, what's this about? And then I went back to Milwaukee for my second year of college. And while I was there, I read the novel The Exodus. Mm-hmm. And I determined from that that I knew what it was that I needed to do. I needed to move to Israel. So I did. I I converted to Judaism. I had a Jewish fiancé. We got on the boat, and we were going to go to Israel and settle on the kibbutz and be in the Promised Land, except on the way over, we got in this enormous fight, and I landed in Israel by myself, basically. Mm-hmm. I think I had the sum total of $20. and. Oh and in, in I went to the American consulate, and I said, well, I'm here, <laughs> and I want to go to kibbutz, you know. So he was like, really? You're like here? <laughs> How did you do this? And so I had to explain, of course. And then yeah. I went to um, kibbutz Ma'abarot, mm-hmm. and I was there for eight months. Mm-hmm. I worked. I mean, it was a farm, so I knew how to do that. Right. And they were so happy that they met an American that knew how to work. <laughs> they were just like, wow, are you really from America? <laughs> I said, yes, I'm really from America. Uh, so, let, let me backtrack a little bit, Shay. Sure. What did your parents think of you converting to Judaism? Not much. Yeah? What was there? Anything. Was... My dad said to me, are you going to wear a yarmulke? <laughs> I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I was the youngest in my family, uh, the youngest of, there were four of us. And I, pretty early on, I think, was kind of the, you know, kind of different. 
Yeah. Maybe a little bit of a rebel, maybe a little bit of... So when I converted to Judaism and was going to move to to Israel, I, you know, they really didn't say much. Now, what is their, what was their religious background? You know, they were practicing nothing. Right. Uh, my stepmom, actually, I lost my um, natural mom when I was two and a half. Mm-hmm. And she had been a strong, her family, they had been strong Catholics, very strong. My stepmom had been raised Catholic, but she didn't really seem interested in church, nor did my dad ever. Mm-hmm. So they took us kids to Catholic church. But their own, you know, sort of religious, it, it wasn't really anything we ever talked about. Right. How did your rebelliousness manifest itself in your growing up years? Well, I think, you know, converting to Judaism and moving to Israel was one thing, right? Yeah, sure. Probably... I remember at that time I was very concerned about what I felt was too much materialism. Mm -hmm. And I remember at one time really, really being upset that Americans now had perfumed toilet paper. (laughs) It just seemed so ludicrous and so horrible. And I just had this longing. It was like there's got to be something going on, you know? There's got to be something happening that's different than what I'm seeing. Mm. And a commune, you know, kibbutz where everybody was equal, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody owned anything. There was a communal dining room. We all kind of got clothes, and we got a little allowance. That just felt really dear to me. Sure. So tell me more about the kibbutz experience. Well, the kibbutz experience was, it was very, you know, human because all of us who spoke English mainly hung out with with each other. And even though on the kibbutz they attempted a lot to, to help me become part of the kibbutz, they they introduced me to a young man that they thought would be a good marriage, you know. They gave me one of the best jobs or what they considered one of the best jobs because they really wanted me to stay. Mm-hmm. They really wanted me to be part of it. But I remember, you know, like a lot of isolation. We had little unheated cabins kind of away from everybody else and... That's my my strongest thing is that because of the language barrier, there, it was very, very difficult to become a part. And then, you know, I wasn't, you know, I'd converted to Judaism, but... You weren't really a Jew. But I wasn't really a Jew. Interesting. I don't know. I You know, I mean, I was, what, maybe I wasn't even 21 yet. So, you know, I had a lot of idealism. And sure. A lot of expectations that, you know, I, it, where was the magic, you know, bubble? And it, just gradually, it, it, I got, you know, more disturbed, like, uh-oh, I, I don't think this is the answer. Mm. I don't think this is going to work. So after that, I, you know, about, it was about eight months. I, I rode home for a little money. Mm-hmm. 
that was that chapter. So you left the kibbutz? I left the kibbutz, yeah. I came back to Wisconsin. And then I kind of went into an existential stage. And what do you mean by that? Oh, I started reading all the existentialists. Mm -hmm. Sartre and, you know, the people who really believe that the meaning of life is that it had no meaning. Mm. And I successfully got myself extremely depressed. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) No doubt, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I hung out in the room and read these dark, dark books. Camus, Camus, you know. And, oh, my God. (laughs) Things are really pretty bad. So, yeah, that's what what I, I did for quite a while. And then... I decided maybe I should try art because I discovered that I really became alive when I started studying the Impressionist and other things like that. And Did you have leanings towards painting when you were a kid? I drew a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I loved drawing a lot. Yeah. I thought I, I, I... So I moved back to Milwaukee and I thought I'd, I'd, I would give a try to that. Mm-hmm. So I, I got ready, and I, I, somebody actually was going to help me with tuition to art school and things like that. So I got a job as a waitress in a hotel. The, it was the Hotel Sister. I was working there, and and all of a sudden this young man, he, well, you know, it, he came to the door, and he looked around, and he turned around and left, and I went, Oh, my God, he can't leave. I'm going to marry him. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> really? And so I ran after him, and uh, I said, Did, were you looking for something? <laughs> and he said, oh, I was looking for so-and-so, you know, because I was thinking of about applying for a job here. And so uh, he came back down, and he did that. And three weeks later, Robert and I left Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to go to Seattle to get some money to move to Spain. Now, why Spain? Well, it's actually first Italy, because we wanted to lay in the Florentine Meadows. (laughs) And then Spain, just because it just seemed like it would be a good idea. Okay. And he was an artist. Mm -hmm. He was a painter and an artist. And he also turned out to be a Baha'i. Okay. When we got to Seattle, we weren't able to get the money to go to Spain, so we got married instead. Mm-hmm. That was that chapter. <laughs> now, let me ask you, I assume he told you about the Baha'i faith? Yeah, he did, to a degree, and I had actually heard of the Baha'i faith before that. And what, what circumstance was that? Well, before I'd left for Israel... The first time, before I converted to Judaism, and before I left to Israel, an old boss of mine, a person not at all religious, said to me, you know, Shay, I'm really concerned, and I, I think I have found the religion you're looking for. And I said, oh, really? I said, I'm really, you know, and he said, oh, yeah. He said, it's called, it's called Baha'i. And it's this and that, and I'm like, well, you don't even like religion, you know. What What is this about? And he said, no, I think, come on, just 
do me a big favor and come. And so I went to, you know, this thing called the fireside, right? Mm-hmm. What is a fireside? Well, the fireside is basically where people share an aspect of what it means, what a Baha- what a Baha'i is. Okay. So I think this particular night they were sharing some Christian viewpoint. I think about prophecy. It was probably, for me, the worst topic. Why is that? Well, I didn't believe in Christianity. And I certainly didn't believe in prophecies. I I just thought that was much too weak. I mean, part of why I was so attracted to Judaism is because it was so intellectual. Mm -hmm. There were so many challenges and so much thought put into it. And people I met had really, really heartfelt, intelligent conversations about what did this mean to to be good or to believe in God. And I come out of this Catholic background where, you know, there was so, for me, it was so much judgment. The Catholics at that point viewed things like, well, we're right, and, you know, and and that's it, we're right, and it didn't leave much room for anybody else. So I was really down on organized religion from that point of view. Mm -hmm. And so Baha'i was like, hmm, I don't know, it just seems like this is another organized religion with some kind of, you know, well, maybe good ideas, but we'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. When I arrived in Israel, actually, I arrived by boat, and I saw there's a shrine in, in Haifa. It has a gold dome, and it's a Baha'i shrine, and it's it's the shrine of the Bob. And I remember saying at that time, wow, see, I knew something was up with them because they're like the Catholics. They're building these buildings with this gold on it. Mm-hmm. So really was strange. So when I met Robert, and Robert was extremely creative and very, very different, very, very poetic, I was actually surprised that he was a Baha'i. As it turned out, he, he had been, you know, he was involved with Baha'i in a way that I would say was probably pretty mystical and so his understanding of it and and how he related to the prophet um, Baha'u'llah as a as a very mystical figure the there's a book called the seven valleys and the four valleys where it's the journey of the soul so that appealed to me that appealed to me so after we had been married, um, I think maybe even less than a year, I, I started again studying, you know, Baha'i and met more Baha'is in Seattle. And that was in the early early 60s. So there was quite a open-mindedness happening. And also I think at that time our our culture was beginning to think that it was possible to expand our consciousness. It was possible to reach 
out and think about each other as one family. And I just really, I, I still think that's such a great idea. Mm. You know, that we could find a way to really think of each other as one family. Mm-hmm. So um, I became involved and became a Baha'i at that point. And that was about how many years after you got married? I think it was just like a year. Okay. December of 1963, actually. Okay. And you had known Robert maybe a year before that or something? No, no, no. Just uh, no, Less a than year. a year. Okay. So in a, in a matter of between a year and two years, you, yeah. you, had, take, you had moved, you had transitioned from the Baha'is being just another organized religion to the Baha'i faith being something that you really feel you could be committed to. Mm, mm. And as you were transitioning to that, could you see your attitudes and your life direction changing along with that transition? Yes, yes, definitely. We then began to think in terms of how we could serve the faith. In Baha'i, there's a terminology called pioneers, where people like myself and Robert at that time felt like we really wanted to share with people what the Baha'i faith was about. Um, We were living in Seattle, which had quite a large Baha'i community at that time. And so we decided that we would go to a smaller, more rural community in Washington State, Walla Walla, and help to form um, what's called an assembly. And an assembly is when a community has nine or more members, and that assembly then is elected, and then they become the representatives that help with the education, help with marriage of people, help with transitional needs, things like that, mm-hmm. in, in that sense. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I guess another, uh, another part of that question is that you initially saw the Baha'i faith as just another organized religion. Mm-hmm. What was it that you discovered about the Baha'i faith that changed your opinion of that? Well, I think it was the a twofold thing. It was the idea of uh, this is about the language of the soul. I think that's how I have to say it. And that the other was I did meet many Baha'is that were very, very loving, very supportive, very, very giving. You know, I, I, I'm, I, I have to be honest to say there were still some things as a Baha'i early on that I felt resistant to. And why did that not stop you from committing yourself to being a Baha'i? Well, I felt it was, it, it, it was something that I would understand as I went along. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it was something that because as a Baha'i, I felt I had the right to independent investigation of the truth. I felt like I 
needed to figure these things out for myself. That really, even though there were frameworks or wraparounds or a certain way of looking at things, I still had to find the truth in them myself. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. Because, you know, there's this one coat fits all thing just doesn't work. Doesn't work. Right. I mean, we're just, I'm, I'm an individual, other people are individuals. So you have one code about a certain law, even personal daily prayer. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, mine is going to be very different than yours. Right. And I really feel like that's something that has to, I have to be reminded of all the time so that I'm not trying to filter someone else's belief system through my filter. Mm-hmm. It's like, how are you getting to where you're getting is probably very different than how I got there. Right. And I think that's the aspect of Baha'i that is really at times overwhelmed me with joy and appreciation. I, at one time, like here, I, I'm not really good at time, but there was the, the international conference held in New York City. In 1992. So, yeah. So there were Baha'is from all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. And there were like 30 or 40,000 Baha'is there. In the diversity was incredible. It's incredible. I've always thought, well, truth has to be able to stand up to something, and it has to be able. If it's truth, it it can take being dissected. Mm-hmm. That's always been something that has been compelling to me about the Baha'i faith. Is that encouragement of each person really? finding their connection, their way of doing things. I mean, to a degree. I mean, (laughs) probably not going to run out naked in the street and say I'm a Baha'i and have that be like, oh, yay. Right. It all comes down to this Baha'i concept called unity in diversity. Yeah, yeah. And that um, the sum is greater than the addition of the individual parts. And that, mm. and that mm. we all we all bring something to the table in our own individual way. Yeah. And unless we appreciate what each one brings to the table, you really can't have unity. And it's not always easy. No, it's not. Not always easy. Nor should it be. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Abdu Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, would say. You know, it's out of the clash of different opinions that truth comes. See, I'm also, at, at this point in my life, I'm also a yoga teacher, right? Mm-hmm. And so part of the dynamic in the history of yoga is the this unity of body, mind, and spirit. Mm. You know, carried into, again, that out of my own connection to the, the spirit that I was given to write is how I'm going to find the meaning of life for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that, for me, what that always shows up to be is I am the happiest when I'm serving others. 
it's just like so much fun. <laughs> that brings up another Baha'i concept, which is work in the spirit of service mm. is as the same as prayer or worship. And that's true. And, you know, I just think we need a kinder, more gentler world. It's just the world, it, it's been so, so, so much struggle, so much war, so many insane reasons why people kill each other. It's just tragic, I think. Mm-hmm. Just tragic. I mean, last night we watched this film, Amazing Grace. It was the story of Wilbur, Wilbur Force, who was the abolitionist in England. It was very powerful that one person really saw that this was harmful for all humanity to have slave ships, to, to treat them as if they were not equal to us. Mm-hmm. And that's an, amazing, that's an amazing aspect. I think of humanity that there are individuals, there are people who rise up or, you know, they, they enter into this struggle that then transforms a major thing, something major, mm-hmm. like slave ships and mm-hmm. things like that. And the Baha'is feel that their mission is of the same sort. We're just a bunch of meager people, ordinary people doing their thing, but Mm. we feel that the world needs to be united and Mm. the call, Mm. the the call is out there. And, Mm. and though we are few people making this call for the world to be one, we, we can have that power just like that one individual who felt that they needed to stand up to the status quo in the area of slavery. That's a, a, a good analogy, it definitely is. Yeah. I know part of being a Baha'i and part of traveling throughout the country and living in different areas of the country, in the United States in particular, when I would go to a Baha'i community, I, it was like there was, it was timeless. It was mm-hmm. like I belonged, I felt like I was part of something. And how great that would be if we, every time we went now to a city, we felt like, oh, yeah, we belong. We're, we can be respectful of each other. I mean, there's this cry for compassion, you know. I mean, I think as a Baha'i, the, the, this idea of being compassionate towards someone who's different. Yeah, for sure. It's really the only way to go. It's, it's going to help us move toward, I think, less greed and I mean I think the the amount of of greed now that is evidenced is also an act of desperation that people are trying to hold on to a way of life that serves no one but themselves yeah I mean even with billions and billions of dollars a person still seems to feel unsettled right and I think that you know that's remarkable. Yeah, I guess after you gotten married for a little for a while, a year or so, you moved to a smaller community, mm-hmm. and then how long were you there? I, I think we were there a little over a year. Mm-hmm. That was Walla Walla, you said. Walla Walla, yeah. Yeah, and then what moved you to move? I think I was still what twenty two, twenty three. 
I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And, it, and there wasn't a way to really make it work there. So we decided we, we were going to go back to Seattle and kind of regroup. When you got back to Seattle, what happened? Shortly after you got back to Seattle, I think I went back to the university again, studying philosophy. And time after that, then I was pregnant and our son was born. Then I became involved with that for a while. Sure. And then some other things came up that I think were fell into the charm of the late 60s, early 70s culture, the love-ins, the be-ins, the kind of the wild and craziness of that time. And I started taking some hallucinogens and really started to drift from my spiritual path. And my husband and I separated, and, and then I went down to California, and I got involved with... Uh, a drug treatment program, and I spent, I think, the next 10 years of my life really floundering. I think I wanted it all right now, and it was it was just hard that it was so much work. Right. It was just, you know, like, why can't, why can't why it just... This, it makes so much sense. Why is this so much work right. to build right. unity? Yeah. I kept searching and looking, and for a while, I, I just withdrew from from Baha'i, just thinking, oh, I can't make this work. I don't know how to make this work. It's just, it's too hard. It's, it's, it's you know, I'm not good enough. I can't make it happen. For two or three years, I tried political things. I tried feminism. I tried this and that. And there was an amazing emptiness, an amazing emptiness. So... I realized that even though on some level I didn't feel worthy about being a Baha'i, that I needed to be a Baha'i. It was the only place that I ended up feeling I could serve and and believe in something. So, and, and that became me. I, I had many jobs. I was on the, it was in North Dakota in Bismarck, and I used to travel and go to the different Indian reservations and share the Baha'i faith with the Native people and meet Native people who were Baha'is and, you know, very rich time. And then in 1982, I I came from Washington State actually to Salem, Mass., with a theater company who we were all Baha'is doing Baha'i type of theater and that's where I met my current husband, Charles Cooper, and we've been together since 1982 and have developed a Prana Health and Yoga Center where, where we share, and my husband, Charles, is also Baha'i, where we share the principles in the, in the service of Baha'i faith through our work. And we often lead meditation courses and other healing courses. I finally landed where I needed to be about who I was, and in 
1989, I formally got my certification as a yoga teacher. I felt it really brought my belief into the present moment. I really was able to relate to myself and others in another dynamic. So I started teaching yoga, and my husband, Charles, took training in in yoga and also massage therapy. And so we offer classes, we offer intensive treatment for different injuries and pain that people might have experienced or are experiencing. We've had the business and have been able to do this. We just feel it's it's a it's an amazing gift, an amazing gift from Baha'u'llah, from God, that we can actually go to work and just love almost every minute we're there. So there is a, a Baha'i school called Greenacre, which is it's just a little bit north in Maine. We're going to be doing a program called The Mystery of Suffering, The Power of Healing. And it's going to be August 22nd to the 25th. And the Greenacre Baha'i School, their phone number is 207-439-7200. And our website for our center is www.pranahealthcenter.com. And prana is spelled P-R-A-N-A. And what's the significance of the term prana? Prana is a Sanskrit word, which means life force or life energy. It's similar to the Chinese terminology called qi. It's a way of helping me and helping other people understand that when we're in touch with this connection to this source energy, it becomes where, well, I'd like to say, like, we open into more more of a flow or more of a connectedness. Now, the name of the course sounds very interesting that you, mm. you're going to offer at Greenacre Baha'i School. Yeah. By the way, the website at Greenacre is www.greenacre.org. You mentioned the relationship between suffering and healing, and I was wondering if you mm. could elaborate on that a little bit. I think our question that we put to ourselves and to perhaps we'll put to the participants is when there is suffering in one's life, is that, you know, which often can be looked at as a doorway to healing or a doorway to learning another aspect or dynamic about who you are. So we're going to be doing hands-on healing, we're going to be doing qigong, which is a Chinese, ancient Chinese form of movement, and other dynamics to help us look at or understand that suffering isn't necessarily something we want to totally welcome, but we also, I think, don't want to totally avoid. There's areas of that can be a teacher, Perhaps that's a danger of being a little cliche-ish, but there is a dynamic in suffering that we have to look at things differently. Mm -hmm. And I see it, and 
over and over again that often people will not look at an issue in their life unless their body presents it to them in a way that is just screaming, can't overcome this back pain anymore. Mm-hmm. And when you go into the back pain, well, there might be other layers of, of what a person's not really looking at. Right. What in your life is not working for you? Mm-hmm. And I, I often ask some people in my class, what is it you truly desire? Within that desiring, is there is there a desire to be connected? And if there is, then is what is it you desire to be connected to? Because I think we've been so torn away from understanding that what I would say is our our life's mission is to help our soul evolve closer to God. And if we're not doing that, the soul always says to us, please, can you just take a look at what's happening? Can you feel what's happening? So it's very dynamic, very dynamic. Can you give an example in your own life where you had experienced something like that? For a while, I was was suffering migraines. Mm -hmm. It was humiliating. I'm a yoga teacher, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How can I be having migraines? And what I what I had to look at with the migraine was saying to me, even though what you're doing is great, you you you're not balancing yourself because you you're taking all this energy and you're doing 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 doing. And so I overdid. I got overstressed. I would get tight. I'd get a migraine. And I would be forced to rest until at one point I said, really, it's like I surrendered. I said, Mm. okay, what is it you want me to do again? (laughs) Oh, okay, when I'm tired, you want me to rest? (laughs) (laughs) What an outrageous concept, but (laughs) all right, I'll try it. And Warren, as soon as I did that, as soon as I rested when I was tired, they went away. Mm. I literally did not have another migraine. So it's that, I think sometimes it's that simple about attempting to really listen to directives that we, that we can receive from our body. But often we think of that as suffering, yeah. which it is. But what can we actually maybe conceive of were, or look at or be willing to just ponder. Maybe there's something here I need to pay attention to in a different way. So where is the Prana Health Center located? It's in um, Salem, Massachusetts, okay, so, north of Boston. Okay, so you've been in Salem for some time then. Yes, yes. Although our home now, where our residence is in Wendell. Oh, that's right. Yeah, but our business is still in Salem, so we consider ourselves kind of gypsies now. Yeah. (laughs) Now, you have something else going on in Wendell I wanted you to talk about. I saw a flyer about the Tranquility Zone. Yes, Can you describe that for me? Every month we offer what we call the Tranquility Zone, and it's 
it's Sunday mornings. It starts at 10, and what we do is we select writings and passages from all, like what we consider now the nine major religions or extant religions, and we'll pick a topic, like our next topic for March will be compassion. And so we share these to show, again, the unity and diversity from Buddhism, from Islam, from Baha'i, from Christianity, from Judaism. And then after that, we have a time of just silent meditation where we are able to absorb and just think about that. And then, and then we serve brunch and then have some time for socialization and just, you know, community building. Now, if somebody's interested in coming to one of these, how would they get information about that? Well, they could call call me at 978-544-2190 or email shay@pranahealthcenter.com. So, yes, we'd love to um, share it. It's a, it's a really been a really very sweet event for all of us. We've been meeting some of the, you know, local people, and then sometimes some Baha'is from the surrounding communities are able to join us as well. And how long have you been doing this? Almost a year, Mm -hmm. but don't hold me to that. Sure. I I won't check up on you on that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now, why is it that you live all the way out in Wendell if your Prana Health Center is in Salem? Well, I'm a country girl. Uh huh. And, you know, we have to go home to the country. So yeah. we have this incredible, oh, just incredible place. We have this kind of cabin home. It's on a stream, and it's surrounded by um, about two to 3,000 acres of state forest. And we live on the end, end of a dirt road. It's really, for me, just coming home because... I've just never been able to really feel at home in the city. Mm-hmm. So Salem was always, like, to me, so congested. So in, I think Baha'u'llah says, doesn't he say something like, the city is the home of the body and the country is the home of the soul, something like that? Yeah, I believe I recall something like that. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of a little bit of, of paraphrasing. but Yeah. But I, so that's how yeah. that happened, and we've been blessed, but we've actually adapted our schedule in such a way that it's very balanced and very sane. We're here in the country Sunday through Wednesday, and then we go into town Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and stay with friends, because it's too long a commute. It's almost two hours. Yeah, that's, that's right. It's like 100 miles between the two. So you couldn't find any country <laughs> any closer than 100 miles from Salem. <laughs> <laughs> well, not that we could afford. Uh, okay, sure. You know, yeah. I mean, around the North Shore, country comes at a high price, you know. Yeah, the real estate in the Boston area, metropolitan area, is very expensive. Yeah, it's yeah. really astronomical. Yeah. So, But it's great. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it, we've created quite a, what we call polarity, and, you know, part of what we do <laughs> Is polarity treatments where yeah. you balance the energy of the two poles. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, 
we're now living it. <laughs> yeah. Well, any last things you want to say before we close? I'm grateful for this opportunity to share on some level. Maybe my small little journey might mean something somewhere along the line to somebody. You know, I think uh, I would just encourage anyone who is wondering to investigate and just see how their soul feels about it. You know, my son is Rain Wilson, right? Yes. He just did a big thing at the Northeast Baha'i Youth, Youth Conference. Did you hear about it? Yes, I did. In fact, my son had an opportunity to interview him for my program. Really? Yeah, yeah. So High perspective? Yeah. yeah. Or, oh, so I was going to say I could try to, you know. Hook me up. Hook you up. <laughs> well, oh my God, that's so great. And I was really pleased that my son did it. Plus, I heard that Rain's presentation, from, according to my son, yeah. Rain's presentation on Saturday night was incredible. Oh, it, yeah. It went from joking around about the Baha'i faith to being very serious and, and everything in between. It was just very, very dynamic talk and very inspirational and moving and so. Someone's supposed to have filmed it. I, I, his father was there, see, so I said to Robert, I said, I am counting on you <laughs> to get this filmed. Yeah. <laughs> and so he said to me, I, he'd talked to someone, and he said, listen, you've got to film this. His mother said, you've got to film it. <laughs> the thing that I want to see is, you know, where he's saying, I think, like, one of the early Baha'i song things, like We Are Drops, or maybe not that, but something kind of like that. Mm -hmm. And then he proceeded to bust the guitar up. <laughs> this, is, this was this Saturday night, this past yeah, Saturday night? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, he busted his guitar up. Oh, my God. On stage. Just like... An actor will do anything. <laughs> right, right, right. And then they sold the pieces of the broken guitar. Oh, as a fundraiser, eh? A fundraiser, right. <laughs> so, oh, that's so funny. So that's dynamic, so funny. huh? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Reminds me back to the days of the Who. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, well, that's so great. I'll be. Yeah. I'll be, look forward to. Um, during Rain's presentation. Yeah, I am too, actually. And, and, yeah. the, and, and the interview, too. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Shay, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Well, I'm very, very happy to have done that. And my goodness, I didn't know that I could just chat so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, very, it was a very nice interview. I really enjoyed oh. it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Shay Cooper, a Baha'i from Wendell, Massachusetts, who is co-founder of the Prana Health and Yoga Center in Salem, Massachusetts. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
we're not famous Think that no one will blame us Letting injustice go on as it does But the starving don't care about the price of your haircut Any true kindness will do Because Bono can't change the world Anymore than you two can Bring us coral and pearls Good woman and your loving man Oh, it may seem you need to be In touch with the royalty To get something big off the ground But your voices and hands do more than any commands could Reviving the spirits of all who surround you And Bono can't change the world Any more than you two can Bring us coral and pearls Good woman and your Bonded together by love So if your little union Should seem rather puny Understand that it's right At the heart of creation Bono can't change the world Anymore This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.